Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard your word. And now as we unpack a portion of it, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Let us be responsive to your word. Let your spirit so animate us as we respond that we will do your will, having heard your will. And so, Lord, I pray um, that this time would cause us to grow in our walk with you, and especially in terms of how we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a student at Wheaton College, uh, one of my friends and classmates uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And after Christmas break, he did not return to campus. We were told about his situation then, and the student body responded in prayer. Somebody posted a 24-hour prayer chain uh, in the student union where we could sign up for 15-minute increments. And so I signed up for one uh, around the dinner hour when I knew that most of the student body would be in the dining hall and the dorms would be pretty quiet and I could be pretty well assured that I wouldn't be interrupted. We had a chapel bell that rang every 15 minutes, and so it marked off the beginning and the end of my agreed-upon time in prayer, and I, I thought that was going to be a helpful thing. And so with that in mind, I, I came and, and knelt beside my bed at the proper time. I heard the chapel bell that sort of signaled my start, and I began to pour out my heart in prayer for my friend, and I asked that God would uh, make himself known to him. I asked that God would assure him of his presence and of his love for him. I, I prayed that God would hold him close to his great heart. I prayed that God would touch his body and, and restore him to health. And I prayed for everything I could think of praying for my friend. And then I began to wonder... I'm not hearing the chapel bell. Did I go too long? Did, did I miss it? Well, I thought I didn't, I haven't gone quite 15 minutes yet. It'll, it'll ring any moment now. I'll just keep praying until it does. And, and I went back to prayer, trying to think of something I hadn't thought of yet to pray for my friend. And after a while, I'm thinking, What's with the bell? You know, the chapel bell isn't ringing. What's going on? And I, I finally just opened my eyes and took a glance at the clock. And five minutes had gone by. <laughs> Ten to go. You ever pray for one thing only for a straight 15 minutes? But we had agreed to do that, I think, for a week. And so every evening I came back to my bedside at that hour and prayed for 15 minutes for one thing. And I think I may have learned more about prayer in that week than I've learned about prayer at any other time in my life. How do we grow in prayer? I think we'd all like to get better at prayer, and Jesus in this passage tells us how we can. 
Let's look again at the text, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you pray, I'm sorry, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus begins by telling us how not to pray in verses five through eight. How not to pray. He says, don't pray, first of all, like the hypocrites, verses five and six. Don't pray like them. And, and just a reminder from last week, a hypocrite, the, the word hypocrite comes from Greek drama where actors would, would put on a mask that would reveal what part they were playing so they could play multiple parts. And so a hypocrite is a play actor someone who is pretending to be something that he's not. And the goal of an actor on the stage is to convince you that he's that. And so a hypocrite is trying to convince you that he's something other than what he is. And Jesus points to the hypocrisy of people who want to be seen praying because it makes them look good. What we need to see is that it's not the action that's wrong, it's no sin to pray with other people. We have done it already here this morning. There was a group downstairs before we began that prayed together. We see it all over the New Testament, people praying together. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, that where two or three agree on something in prayer, it will be done for them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 24, the apostles get together and pray over who will replace Judas. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer in order to pray with other people. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 30, the believers prayed for boldness after the release of Peter and John from jail. So it's no sin to pray with other people. It's no sin to pray in public. But what Jesus is concerned about is our motive for doing it. Now, if you look at, at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus sort of gives a topic sentence for the whole section, verses 1 through 18, and says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he's speaking of our motive. A motive of wanting to be seen and admired by people. 
for our giving, for our praying, for our fasting. And he's saying here, starting in verse 5, that if that's your motive, you may as well not pray. Your prayer's not going anywhere. It's hypocrites. It's play actors who do that. Don't do that. Because the admiration they get for doing it is all the reward they're going to see. Instead, Jesus says, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The word that's used for room here speaks of an inner room, a room that would have no windows. Do you have one of those in your home? You know, when you hear the tornado siren go off, this is the place you're supposed to go, the place with no windows. In other words, you're not to be seen when you go to this inner room. And there you commune with the Father in secret. Verse 6, verse six says the Father is in secret or in the secret place. One translation says shut the door and pray to your Father who is in that secret place. Go to the secret place and pray to your Father who's in that secret place, referring to this private place where you go to pray. It's certainly possible to translate it that way, and it's a wonderful way to look at it. He's there. You get to the secret place where nobody sees you, he's there waiting for you. Sometimes, I think we'll probably just about all agree, we are asked to pray in public. We are invited to lead in prayer, to pray in front of other people. I think it happens to just about all of us. And as I said before, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with public prayer. But let me toss out a few questions. One is this, what is the balance between your public prayer and your private prayer? Do you pray more in public than you do in private? And how do you sound when you are in public praying versus when you're in private praying? Do your prayers in private sound any different than your prayers in public? If they do, you need to ask yourself, who am I really talking to here? Am I talking to the Father or am I talking to the people that I'm leading in prayer right now? These are questions I believe we need to grapple with because we do pray in front of other people. It's one of the ways we live out our faith. It's one of the ways we work out our salvation. It's one of the ways we practice our righteousness, which Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of doing that in front of other people. We will be doing these things in front of other people and there's always a danger to that, so we need to check our motives. If we are praying for some other purpose than to talk to God, we've already received our reward. So, Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites who just want to be seen as pious. Then he says, don't pray like the Gentiles either, verses 7 and 8. These people who heap up empty phrases, literally these people who babble. They babble in prayer. They go on and on, trying to use different words, trying to go long. Why do they do that? Why do Gentiles babble? It's because they don't know God. 
they don't know who he is. They don't know what he's like. If they did, they wouldn't do that. They think they can move him and impress him with their verbose and lengthy prayers. And so they work at their technique. They think that the effectiveness of their prayer comes from technique, from how they perform, thinking it's, it's all about words, it's all about length, that you can manipulate God if you say the right things or if you pray long enough. Think about the prophets of Baal in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. I was thinking about including that in, in some of the readings this morning, but let me just sort of sum it up for you. In 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, they called out to Baal from morning till noon. There's some good length for you. They limped around the altar they had made. They got a little choreography going. It, it's, it's, it's kind of this technique thing. You, know, you limp around the altar in a special way. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. This was their custom. It showed the earnestness of their prayer. They raved on until the evening sacrifice, hoping Baal would answer. Man, if words and sincerity and length did it, I don't know how you could do it better. What they were trying to do was a little bit of magic. Manipulate the forces that be into doing what you want them to do. And God isn't swayed by that sort of thing. He's not swayed by our words. He's not swayed by formulas. He's not swayed by length. You can't manipulate him. You can't offer to do things for him in exchange for what you're asking him to do for you. In other words, no magic. You can't manipulate him. This manipulation coin has another side to it. Flip it over and you find fatalism. From the idea that, that you can manipulate God, you, you have the other end of the pole that says you can't do anything to affect any, any outcomes in your life. It's, it's fatalism. So you might as well not pray. Those are the two sides. If you're a fatalist, you resign yourself to whatever God has ordained. You just say it's what's going to be is going to be, and you give up praying. Fatalism says, God knows what I need before I ask him. Jesus said it in verse 8. So I might as well not ask. I might as well not pray. No need to bother him. But that's not how Jesus encourages us to respond to the fact that God knows what we need before we ask. We need to navigate between the two poles of manipulation and fatalism. Both are wrong. Jesus says God isn't swayed by your verbosity. You, you can't manipulate him. And he already knows what you need before you ask. Verse 8. So, verse 9. Ask. He already knows what you're going to need, verse 8. So ask, verse 9. It's, it's a wonderful thing that verse 8 is followed by verse 9. The space between manipulation and fatalism is navigated by relationship. 
We come to him as children of their loving father. And what makes our prayer effective isn't our performance. It's our mediator. That's who makes our prayer effective. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's who makes our prayer effective. Jesus makes relationship with the Father possible. That's our starting point. Do you have a relationship with God through Christ? He paid the price for your sin. Is he your savior? Do you have a relationship with God through him? Through him, we know the Father as our Father. And Jesus encourages us to communicate with him as a child does with their loving father. When our uh, oldest daughter was living at home and working, I knew she needed the car in order to get to work. I knew that. But she would come to me and ask me for the car, and I would give her the car so she could go to work. I knew her needs before she asked. She, I, I knew she asked, I gave. Now, if she'd asked for the car in order to race it against a friend's car, she would have found out that I knew her needs better than she did, and I wouldn't have given it to her. Now, suppose she really worked on the ask. She, she really wanted to get it to race against a friend, and she just honed this ask very carefully and, and came to me and said, Oh, Father, how I love thee. Give me thine car and, and let me take it out for the evening. Do you think I wouldn't have seen through that? Through that performance? No, instead she comes to me as a trusting child of her father and asks for something she needs, and I'm happy to give it. It's not about technique, it's about relationship. The Father knows our need before we ask. We approach him as his children in confidence and trust that he'll give us what we really need. And so then our asking allows us to exercise our faith in him. And then we get to see our faith Rewarded. So Jesus begins by telling us how not to pray. Like hypocrites who want to be seen and admired, or like Gentiles who don't know God, who think they can manipulate him into giving what they want. And then he tells us in verses 9 to 13 how to pray. He's told us how not to, now he tells us how to. The section we call the Lord's Prayer. It really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It was given to the disciples by the Lord, so it's, it's his to give. But it's, it's not his prayer, it's, it's ours. It's, it's for us to use. Jesus wouldn't need to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because he had no sin. So it's, it's we who need it. It's really the disciples' prayer, but we've been calling it the Lord's Prayer for 2,000 years. You and I aren't likely to change that anytime soon. 
he gave it to us as a template for how to pray. Not as a prayer to be recited as a ritual. We don't want it to become one of the empty phrases that people pile up because they don't have a relationship with the Father. It's a prayer that has six petitions. The first three are directed Godward. The last three are reflected usward. Let's look at the Godward ones first, verses 9 and 10. They tell us that in our prayers, God and his interests need to come first. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Three Godward petitions. First having to do with his name. Hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy. We know that his name is holy. It is so holy that Jews wouldn't utter it. When they would see it in the text, they would deliberately say another word. Because we have unclean lips not worthy of bearing the name. So his name is holy. What Jesus is concerned about here is that his name be regarded as holy, that his name be kept holy, that people would revere him and respect him and follow him. We looked earlier at Moses' prayer for God's people in Exodus chapter 32 after they had worshipped the golden calf and God declared to Moses his intent to wipe them out. And you see at the heart of Moses' prayer a concern not so much for the people as for the name of the Lord. He appeals to God not to wipe out his people who've defiled themselves, not for the sake of God's people, but for the sake of God's name. He says, what will the Egyptians say if you do this? They'll think you're as fickle as their gods. No, for the sake of your name, don't wipe your people out. So hallowed be your name means may your name be kept holy. May people see you as holy as you are. Now one way we can lean into that ourselves is by living in such a way that we bring glory to God's name. They see us, the glory bounces off of us and goes to him. When God's people represent him well, he gets the glory. But on the other hand, Romans chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We can bring discredit on the name of God as well. God wants us to live lives that glorify his name. May your name be kept holy. The second petition has to do with his kingdom, his royal rule. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is essentially the kingship of God. Wherever he is recognized as king, there is his kingdom. We want to see his kingdom extended to the ends of the earth through the gospel. We long to see his kingdom consummated when Jesus returns. When we pray your kingdom come, we're asking then for two things. The extension of his reign to people everywhere and the glorious return of Christ to rule and reign on earth. The third Godward petition has to do with his will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So let me ask you, how thoroughly is his will done in heaven? Some of the time? Some of the people who are there? All of the time. All of the people. May that be so here on earth. Can you imagine what things would look like if God's will were done here on earth as it is in heaven. I get so tired of looking at the news every night and seeing God's will so flagrantly disregarded. May your will be done here on earth even as thoroughly and completely as it is in heaven. Three petitions to put God first in our prayer life. Do we honor God's name, his reputation? Do we prefer his kingdom? Do we do his will? This is where we start in prayer. Our own requests only come after we consider his name, his kingdom, his will. So let's turn now to the us word petitions, verses 11 to 13. Notice they are not me word petitions, they are us word petitions. There is no singular pronoun here, it's all plural. There's no me in the Lord's Prayer, only us. And the petitions in this section are in support of advancing his kingdom. In this model prayer, we're asking for the things we will need to advance the kingdom of God. And if we're going to advance his kingdom, we're going to need some physical provision. So it is appropriate to pray for it. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice it's daily bread it shows our ongoing dependence on him every day. We don't ask for a lifetime of stuff so that we would never need to think of him again. We ask for daily provision so that we can see him come through for us daily. In Exodus chapter 16, God gives enough manna to his people for the day. And they trust that he will give it again the next day as they need it. God proves faithful every day. And if we're going to advance God's kingdom, we're going to have to have right relationships with God and with others. And so he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In Christ, we receive grace so that we can be forgiven. But in Christ, we also receive grace that we can pass on to others. And forgive them as we have been forgiven. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. In Luke, 4, uh, Luke 11 verse 4, parallel passage, he says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Jesus is going to say more about this in verses 14 and 15 that we'll look at in a minute. But imagine being forgiven only to the extent that we have forgiven others. You can't pray this prayer and be unforgiving. And if we're going to advance God's kingdom, we're going to need to be kept pure, so it's appropriate to pray for that as well. And so he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It doesn't suggest that God tempts us. It's not like he's going to lead us into temptation if we don't pray this. He doesn't tempt us. James makes that really clear 
In James 1, verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But that word temptation has two meanings and only the context will determine which applies. It can mean temptation in the sense of luring somebody into sin. Satan does that. And it can mean trials in the sense of proving us, testing us, refining us to strengthen us. And God does that. James says in chapter 1, verse 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, same word, of various kinds, for you know that the testing, the proving of your faith produces steadfastness. These trials come to us to strengthen us. So we're not asking in the Lord's Prayer to be kept from those things. We would never grow without trials. We're asking the Lord to keep us from the sort of temptation that overpowers us rather than strengthens us. Temptation that leads us into sin. So the us word petitions in the Lord's Prayer equip us with what we need to advance the kingdom of God on earth. Praying for our physical provision, for our spiritual condition, for our moral purity. And with those three things provided for, we will have a life that can make a real impact for God. One more thing, because there are two verses left in this section. And in those two verses, verses 14 and 15, we find a critical component. We find Jesus giving us a close-up of one of the petitions of this prayer, given in verse 12, where he says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here in 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So why does Jesus, of all of the things in the Lord's Prayer, come back to this? Why does he zero in on forgiveness? It's almost as if one of the disciples had said to him, um, could you back up a little bit? There, there, there's one thing I'm a little unclear about. What did you mean when you said, forgive us as we forgive others? What did you mean by that? The priority that Jesus gives to our relationships is staggering. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Verses 21 to 24, he tells us, go ahead and interrupt your worship if you realize that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Here in chapter 6, uh, verse 12, he says, pray to be forgiven to the degree that we've forgiven others. In Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, he gives this powerful parable that we read earlier in the service that shows someone who was forgiven a huge debt and yet who was unwilling to forgive a much smaller debt and his forgiveness is taken back. In that parable, I think it's helpful to notice what happened first. The master forgave this man his incredible, inestimable debt. And it was after that that the guy went out 
and grabbed by the neck the guy that owed him a comparatively smaller amount. To consider the enormity of the debt that was forgiven, I, I just kind of crunched some numbers. You might want to try it yourself, but I, I just figured based on minimum wage, what would this amount to? A talent is 20 years of labor, 20 years of wages, okay? And this guy owed 10,000 talents. If my math is correct, working a 40-hour week, five days a week, that comes to over $6 trillion. Can you imagine it? I mean, a, a trillion isn't just like the next number after a billion. It's a thousand billion. And, and so this guy owes a debt of $6 trillion that is forgiven him, and, and he goes out and chokes this guy that owes him 100 denarii. A denarius was what you would get for a day's work. This guy owes him 100 days' work. He's been forgiven $6 trillion debt, and the debt that he goes after is about a $12,000 debt. The priority that Jesus places on relationships is huge. We have been forgiven an inestimable debt. How can we not forgive someone else who owes us so much less? Now, if somebody owed me $20, it would be understandable if I would remind him every now and then, hey, you still owe me the 20. I mean, 20 bucks is nothing to sneeze at, you know? But if I just inherited half a million bucks, what would that $20 be in comparison? I think I might stop reminding him. I might just say, you know what, it's okay. In verse 12, Jesus uses the word debts. In verses 14 and 15, he uses the word trespasses. You've probably heard the Lord's Prayer recited with both ways. Some people say, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. These words are used synonymously here. The debts he speaks about in verse 12 are moral debts owed because of sin. The trespasses he speaks of in 14 and 15 are transgressions where somebody steps over the line and sins against us. And we're to forgive both because of what God has done for us in Christ. He's forgiven us a debt beyond measure. Now, what does forgiveness look like? What does it look like? The Greek word that is used for forgive all through this section literally means to let go. Let it go. Send it away. Release it. Picture if you had caught a sparrow and you're holding it in your hand. It's wiggling to get free, so you, you want a tight enough grip on it that it's not going to get out of your hand, but you don't want to crush the life out of the little thing either, so you're, you're gripping it tightly. What else can you use your hand for while you're doing that? Not a thing. Can you reach into your pocket and get your keys out? No, you can't. Can, can you write a note to a friend? No, you can't. You can't use your hand at all. What's your mind focused on the whole time you're holding that little bird? Holding that little bird. If you focus on something else, you might loosen your grip and it'll get away. It'll occupy all your attention. What happens when you choose to let it go, 
to open your hand, it flies away. It's gone. We can do that with the offenses of others. Jesus said, forgive. Let it go. You've been forgiven so much more. Now, we've all got offenses that people have done against us. We've got them, and the choice is ours. We can hold on to them and make them the object of our focus, or we can loosen our grip and let them go and be free of them. It's a wonderful way to live, to let those things go, and it's a perilous thing to refuse to forgive. It betrays the condition of our heart Don't let your heart grow hard. Let it be broken by the enormity of your sin. Let it be softened by the realization of what God has forgiven you in Christ. And then turn to the brother or sister whose sin against you pales in comparison. And let it go. You know, if you wanted to improve your golf game, a couple of lessons from Bubba Watson would go a long way, wouldn't they? If you wanted to get a better handle on your finances, sitting down with a financial planner for an hour would be a pretty good move. If you want to get better at prayer, you can't do better than to listen to Jesus. He tells us how not to pray, like the hypocrites who want to do it for show, like the people who don't know God, and he tells us how to pray. Father first, then our needs in support of the mission he's given to us. May God be honored by our life of prayer and by a desire in our heart to grow in our ability to pray. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll make use of them this week, perhaps in a small group, perhaps around your dinner table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Help us to take it to heart to put it into action, that you may receive glory from our lives, that we may live the kind of life of freedom that you intend us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.